Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis, and I'm so delighted to have Dr. Joan Strassman here with us on the podcast today. Dr. Strassman is the author of Slow Birding, The Art and Science of Enjoying Birds in Your Own Backyard. She's a professor of evolutionary biology at Washington University in St. Louis, mother of three, owner of at least one dog. And we're just so happy to have her on the podcast. Dr. Strassman, how are you today? I'm fine. Please call me Joan. <laughs> Deal. I have trouble doing that even with professors I had 20 years ago. I just, I can't let go of the doctor. You earned it. It was a lot of work. Everyone's done something that they earned. We don't do titles, really. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Joan, it's so lovely to have you. I enjoyed your book, Slow Birding, so much. I am not a birding expert, but I'm a very serious birding enthusiast. And your book made me so hungry to know more. And it made me feel like it was possible to know more. You had these wonderful, gentle invitations, things like go to your local park, go to your backyard, bury an acorn and see what happens. I can do this. Thank you for writing such a thoughtful, deep, interesting, approachable book. What inspired you to write Slow Birding? So lots of professors that write books get their inspiration from their research and they want to share their research with the broader community. Those books sometimes succeed, but they, they often end up being too technical and too hard to understand. And they're written essentially for the same audience as their research. My book comes not from my research, but from my teaching. I love to teach. I love, You've talked a lot about hope. I love the the bright enthusiasm of our, our young beginners. And I've always worked on animal behavior and evolution. But my study organisms have been not the most, uh, shall we say, user-friendly. I spent my first 25 or so years in research working on wasps. And yes, the ones that sting, the ones that, you know, nest under your your um, eaves and, and they sting you. And I love them. They're fascinating. You can mark them and watch them do amazing things. It's just not a taste everyone shares. So I feel strongly in teaching that we want not only to teach the facts, but how we come to those facts. And so with my teaching, I wanted the students to be able to watch things, watch something and come up with ideas that they themselves could teach. And so that was, that was birds. And so I taught for many years at Rice University, a, uh, 
a class on uh, animal behavior that used birds. And it was, I gave them three birds. They were birds on campus. Um, They were uh, yellow. This was at Rice University in Houston. They were yellow crowned night herons, great tailed grackles, and um, mockingbirds, northern mockingbirds. And my first question for my students was simply, go out, spend an hour watching each species and tell me how they're using time and space and how it differs between the sexes. Uh, And it was a trick question because two of those birds, the sexes don't differ. And I told them, don't read anything. This class is not a class where you're gonna ever read about these birds. I don't want you to. So it's kind of a long start, but that's that's where slow birding came from. So that when I, uh, I've also done field work in Italy and I've learned Italian and worked there quite a bit. And so when I saw the slow food movement come along, I thought, oh, slow birding. Well, you might know that that was slow food was in 1987. So it took me a very, very long time to finally put this dream into words. Hmm. I love the that it was a slow book in coming. Your slow burning book took its time. I I got my hands on your book and was trying to tear through it because it was so wonderful. And, and I had to stop myself. No, no, no. This is a book to be savored. You can't read slow burning quickly. So I had to pause between chapters and and invite my kids to do some of the exercises that you had set out for us. We live in Southern California, so we don't have all the same birds. I'm I'm jealous of your blue jays. Uh, I miss blue jays. And you say those are your favorite birds. Many people say blue jays are kind of mean. They're kind of ornery. They're not people's favorite birds. What delights you about blue jays? I don't know. Blue jays have such an attitude. And they're they're kind of out there. Um, I'm not a soft-spoken person. Maybe I'm a blue jay. <laughs> Uh, and they're they're unappreciated. We lost so many blue jays with West Nile when it swept through. They've they've come back, but you know, for a while it was rare to hear a blue jay. That's that most common of birds. So I, I don't know. I I don't really you know. It's like my kids. I don't have a favorite, of course. But uh, if I have to say one, I'd say blue jays and. I I would say that if I still lived in Texas, I'm now in Missouri, if I still lived in Texas, I would have to say Northern Mockingbird. I just love those birds. We we have some of those in our neighborhood and occasionally in our backyard, and they are a show. They are a whole show, those northern mockingbirds. They got a lot of things to say. Your your chapter on mockingbirds laid out such wonderful research. Can you tell us a little bit about the variety in their songs, how many songs they sing, why they sing? So that poor male that's singing at 3.30 in the morning or 3 or whatever all night long, he hasn't gotten a mate yet, and he's still hoping And uh, he's just going to keep singing till he gets that mate. And if it's there every year, it's not the same bird because that guy was probably a youngster. And the next year he was a little more fortunate. Um, 
I had a student who studied mockingbirds, which I, I talk about in that chapter. And uh, she's a fantastic student, but she could never quite get, and she got her PhD, of course, but she never quite knew the modern statistics to put it all together. So kind of in a bringing things to a, to a uh, conclusion or a circle, I had a student this year who was just given me a reanalysis of her data set putting things together. And uh, it's not every paper submitted in 2023 that has data from 1992 and 1993, but uh, I just think that the uh, discoveries should be out there. I love that. Slow mockingbird research. We'll get there. Very slow. <laughs> and the the thing that was most interesting to me in that chapter on mockingbirds is the variety in their songs. There was one that you wrote about that was studied that sang over a thousand different songs. And of those, more than 400 were unique. They're, they're amazing. I, I, my, my brain cannot hold the idea of 400 unique songs. Yeah, they have so many songs that it's it's hard to uh, figure out a way of studying, of comparing mockingbirds, because, you know, how long do you have to listen to really understand them? They, as you've probably heard, they'll, they love to imitate things like backing up trucks. There was a very careful study that figured out which uh, frogs and toads they uh incorporated their songs into uh, their songs. So when research, researchers run up and against something like that, we have to find a way of finding something we can compare. So one of the things the scientists would do is they'll say like, okay, we can't get at all these songs. They're just too amazing. So we'll look at transitions between one song and another and count transitions in a certain amount of time. And, and that's something that uh, we can do when we're listening to a mockingbird, you know, just put a little tick when they go from one song type to another. Or we could say, lis listen to all the songs in, in some fixed amount of time. But yeah, mockingbirds are, are wonderful. I spent a year at a research institute in Berlin a, a couple of years ago. And uh, of course, they have the nightingales and the nightingales are wonderful, but mockingbirds are better. <laughs> <laughs> the number of times I've grabbed my, my birding apps or my binoculars and thought there is a new kind of bird in my backyard. And it's just that mockingbird sitting on the peak of the roof. He can do sirens. He can do wrens. He can do rob. I mean, he's amazing. He does. He's got a whole, he's showing off his sports car back there to all the ladies. Um, so as I've started to get into birding, it's been really interesting to see the different types of birding that there are the different types of birders. There are, there are as many types of birders as there are types of people. And you write in your book that slow birding is in contrast to motor birding. Tell me about that contrast. What is motor birding and why are you drawn to slow birding instead? So, I, you know, I don't really like to disparage any birders. And uh, I needed a name for the sort of standard, let's get up at uh, 4 or 5 a.m. 
and spend a day seeing as many birds as we can. And, and then what you naturally do is you go here because you know certain birds will be there and then you hop in the car and you go somewhere else. And, you know, you might not even get your daily number of steps, even though you've been outside all day long. So that's what I call motor birding. And it's fine. A anything that gets you out and looking at birds. For me, I find... If I can use the word spiritual, the feeling of walking outside and seeing what's there and maybe getting away from all freeway sound, um, it just really means means more to me. And that's not to say that I'm never a motor birder, but I, I just hope that people can add something to the experience and can get to know the birds because just because you've seen it doesn't mean you really know anything about it. And, you know, we have a fabulous community of ornithologists who spend their lives on these birds and uh, let's learn their stories. So much of the work of slow birding in your book was about noticing and paying attention, which I do think those are spiritual practices. And I think that those tether, tether us to hope. And this idea that, um, yeah, you're not disparaging the motor birders, you know, it's fun to go see things. It's fun to check things off the list, but what can we learn in our own backyard in the local park? What can we see from our window? Just this morning, I was drinking my coffee and I looked out and there were three crows on the roof across the street and they were shaking their tail feathers because it's kind of damp outside. And I thought, are they drying? What are they doing? And I realized I don't even know how long crows live. These are in my backyard and I know so little but I could learn so much, like you said, by not necessarily starting with books and research, but starting with my own observations. The, the tool you talk most about in your book is a notebook. You have your trusty notebook. You say it time and time again, and you write down what you see. You write down the date. You compare it to last season, that we don't need the best camera equipment or the $4,000 binoculars. We can use our eyes and our senses. Um, I love that at the end of every chapter, you have some gentle invitations. They're not requirements. They're not go and do this. It's it's here's here's how you could start some slow birding with blue jays, with mockingbirds, with house wrens. What were some of your favorite invitations? When people say, I'm brand new to this, where should I start? What I really like is that very simplest one, which I give my undergraduates, which is to just find a bird, find one individual and watch it for as long as you can, you know, put yourself in their place. What is it doing? Um, something I like to say is that I like to bird hungry because the birds are all hungry and hunger is hunger and mm -hmm. fear are driving their decisions. And, you know, should I go for that, for that nut? Will I eat it at the feeder? Will I carry it to the safety of a tree? What, what will I do? So I, I, I just go back to what I do with my students is, is watch the birds and just see, see what they're doing. And, I'm a sociobiologist, so the behaviors that I like the most are the social ones. Who are they interacting with? Are they displacing or being displaced by another bird at a at a feeder or or you know what's what are they doing? And uh, you know, then from there you might see a behavior that you say, hey, I want to look for that behavior in more other birds. But it's really I, I got an email from a former student who uh, who 
said, Joan, what I remember from you and what I always tell people is that biology is all about counting things and you just have to be sure you count the right things. I love that because anyone can do that. I can do that. I've, my youngest is four years old and she and I could go to the park and do that. And that that bar is so low, but there's also no limit to how much you can observe and the things that you can begin to notice. It's I, the thing that I love most about birding is that there is no end to the birding, whether it's backyard birds or you're traveling the world, that the delight in birding, there's always something new to notice. And you don't know what's going to be in the yard the next morning. You don't know what's going to be at the park. There's this constant source of delight. Your book focuses on 16 specific birds out of thousands why these 16 birds? Was it difficult to narrow it down? And why did you choose the ones that you did? So everyone likes the rarest thing and the special thing. And people drive to go places to see some bird that was sighted there. And there's, you know, we have mo birds, which is an alert for birds here and all. So in my contrary nature with slow birding and how few birds can you see, I wanted to do the very most common birds. I also limited myself to St. Louis to a 20 mile radius. And, you know, I started thinking about this book when I was living in Germany. So it, it was a little, it wasn't, it seemed so obvious, but in fact, it was hard to pick just St. Louis. So I picked, you know, the rats of the bird world were the first I was going to do. So that would be starlings and house sparrows. And then robins, which are probably the first birds that little kids see, uh, blue jay. It, it just wasn't hard to pick birds. I wanted the book as much as possible, besides being very local, to be national. So I also picked birds like... Uh, house wrens and flickers and um, birds that do occur all over the, the country. So then the other requirement was that there be really significant research done on the bird. And some common birds have had, you know, very few studies. I, I, you know, I thought about the gray cat bird and there's really not as much as on the other birds. So the, the birds I picked just had fabulous research done on them. And that's a word to any future ornithologists out there. There's, there's a dearth of gray cat bird research. So we, we need you, we need you on the gray cat bird, future ornithologists. I love the birds you chose. And I think there is something so beautiful and significant about choosing, in your words, the rats of the bird world. You know, folks say, oh, it's just a house sparrow. Oh, it's a bunch of starlings in the grocery store parking lot. And we miss some of the beauty. A starling up close is phenomenally beautiful. Their feathers are have this iridescence and they look like they have the cosmos on their back. They're super smart too. They're so, I had no idea. I learned so much from your chapter on starlings. Um, I, I really appreciated both the national scope and that there were some birds that your book made me long for because we don't have them here in Orange County. We don't have cardinals. We don't have blue jays. And now when I do travel to see friends anywhere in the Eastern half of the country, I'm so excited to see and observe and learn more about those particular birds. 
What is your opinion on bird feeders? There has been a lot in the birding world recently about some of the diseases that are going through bird populations. And is it healthy? Is it a good idea to have feeders? If we do, how do we take care of them? How do you feel about backyard bird feeders? So I have the kind of yard that gets cited about once a year by the city. I always fight it. Um, and I, you know, I know the woman now and, you know, she's like, keep it off the sidewalk. So your best bird feeder is native plants and mm. leave them up. You know, my garden looks terrible right now, but, but I know there's, there's solitary bees and wasps and ants hibernating in the stem. So I'm not going to clean it up till next summer. So that's your best bird feeder. My um kind of truth is whatever makes humans better environmentalists is worth having and bird feeders bring joy to people so i'm not going to oppose bird feeders i myself have lots of bird feeders if there's a time when you know there's some pox in your area um and often there is, be sure to, to wash them, maybe have duplicates so you can, you know, soak some in a dilute bleach solution and put out others, disperse them in the, in the yard, maybe scatter seeds on the ground. So whatever your local Audubon society is telling you to do, res respect that, um, I find it, I have often had a hummingbird feeder and I'm sure in Southern California, those would be totally worth having. Here I I have them, but the time we have hummingbirds is also the time when my, my hummingbird friendly plants are flowering. So I'll often just depend on the flowers for hummingbirds, but yes to feeders. <laughs> yes to feeders. And I love the native plants are the best bird feeders. We we have started leaving our lawn a little bit longer than we used to. And we've been amazed at how many more birds that brings to our yard, just mowing it at, you know, six inches rather than four inches. And it does look a little shaggy and the birds love it because birds don't like tidy for the most part. They like to, you know, what is the Carolina Wren famous for nesting in the rusted old Chevy? They They like what they like. Yeah. You've seen in your research in your lifetime a lot of changes in bird populations migrating sooner, earlier, because things are warmer. And there can be kind of a thrust in the birding world toward despair. I told someone a few years ago, I think I'm going to get into birding in a few years when I have more time. And they said, you should start now because you may not be able to see the same birds in five or 10 years. And I thought that is such a sad perspective. So how do we find hope in the world of birding while still being realists, while still being keen observers? Where are you finding hope in your birding practice? Well, you have to have, you have to have hope. You have to be an optimist. I think the saddest thing we could do would be to discourage the next generation of, of uh, birders, environmentalists, students, that it's all past. So I, I really don't view that as an option. I went to the bird meetings in Puerto Rico last June 
and there was a symposium on neotropical birds and steep declines, even in habitats that were still pristine just because of climate change. Um, so yes, there's extremely serious problems. I find my hope in what I do at the ballot box. Mm. That's activating hope. I find my hope in uh, supporting the charities that I support. Above all, I find it in my in my students and in seeing their bright faces and their willingness to engage. Um, there's a balance between complacency and letting someone else do it and despair that I don't have to do anything because the world's gone anyway. So everyone needs to find their way of con contributing their way of making a difference and doing it. And part of mine was writing my slow birding book. I so appreciated that tone in the book. It was not a book of despair. It was a book of interest and delight and engagement while still having a good thread of realism. Here's what we've observed. Here's what we've noticed. Here are some changes that we may need to make. And I think that balance is so tricky to strike, but so important because despair drains us of energy to make any sort of changes or positive contributions. But that spark of delight, of hope, of interest. What are you teaching this semester? What are your students working on as you head into this, this new, new semester? Classes. Uh, this semester, I'm mostly guiding them. I have a postdoc who's actually teaching a class in called Research Perspectives. And in that class, we try to help undergrads who are doing research see the bigger picture. So we do things like scientific improv, which is a huge amount of fun using uh, Alan Alda's techniques and some others. We do poster making where we give them posters that I've scavenged from scientific meetings and given them and tell them, okay, cut this down to 300 words and two graphs, figure out what's important and make their own. And then once they've done that on someone else's research that they don't really care about, it's much easier for them to see how they can't put every detail in a poster on their on their own research. And this is all building up to uh, the spring po research poster session that WashU puts on. So that kind of thing. That is a br brilliant exercise. Take this research that you don't care about and cut it down because we fall in love, don't we? They say that about writers. You have to kill your darlings. You fall in love with these passages. And I have several Word documents that are just things I'll use later that I will never use, but I can't bear to delete them. I have to save them somewhere. Scientific improv. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, I want it, in on that. It's fantastic. And it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a lot of fun. 
I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian pastor is my day job. And I think of how often we just throw lots of words at people and expect some sort of transformation or inspiration. And what we are learning as a church is there is a lot of transformative power in improv and in creativity and in these hands-on sorts of don't tell people about the birds, tell people to go out and, and look at the birds. Um, tell me about that, that interplay for you. You talked about birding as a spiritual practice and how does that connect with your, with your heart and with your spirit? Uh, You know, I think, you know, my husband is a very uh, calm person who's, you know, he's out on his run right now and, and he's, and I'm a very kind of jumpy person and find it hard to keep a schedule, but I start every day with my bird walk and it's just around the local mm. park. It's nothing too exciting. I never miss it because we have a little furry dog that uh, looks forward to that. Um, and I I just find learning the birds just kind of grounds me. So I'm when I go somewhere new, I, I look up the birds and and just you know find out what's what's there and and uh what i can watch um the connection to the natural world that helps you feel yeah i just think that yeah getting getting outside is uh is so for me it is just so important and uh yeah, and I think I, I guess the other thing that I truly love is uh, cooking <laughs> and uh, slow cooking. I, actually, no, my, I'm no a really microwaves. Fast cooker, and uh, you know, I was completely unfamiliar with the lower settings when I had a gas stove. I was the only thing I had. We now have an induction stove that has that pea setting that boils water in like 30 seconds. And boy, I've scorched a lot of things. <laughs> but yeah, you, you know, I just think it's fun to get to be really good at something and to and then to share it and to teach it. So I I think, you know, I feel really, my kids are grown. Of course, I see them all the time. They're they're not local, but I do see them a lot. But uh, Hmm. having that younger generation to teach is just, just a wonderful thing. The spark and connection that comes when we begin to have names for things, seeing a bird and knowing its name and this familiarity and this connection has been one of the deepest joys for me in getting involved in birding. It's not the black and white bird in the backyard. It's the Phoebe, which is a flycatcher, which means something. And and to watch people become invested in the world of birding. I think the pandemic lit that spark for a lot of folks. They were stuck at home. There was nothing to do. And for the first time, they started to look out the window. And now I hear myself saying things like, you know what's next to my my poor husband, who is not a birder and is very patient, but is... You know, he's. we go on a date and he says, you get three bird facts, Courtney, three, any ones you want. And then we're moving on. You know, what's next spring migration. And I'm already excited for spring migration. What happens in spring migration in St. Louis? What do you look forward to as we're headed toward that spring thaw in a few months? So we are on the great Mississippi flyway and it's just fantastic. And actually already in a 
now and in a few weeks, the snow geese will be flying north already. And uh, I just loved learning about snow geese. And I think they're so much like humans and both in their fidelity to their mates, but also in their environmental destruction. So the snow geese are the first. And then, uh, yeah, you just go in any little woodlot and you can find so many things and you put Merlin on your phone and you can't believe everything it says, but it tells you what to look for. So here in St. Louis, the birdathon is in May. It's a charity that, you know, you try to see as many birds as you can and then uh, give money to the St. Louis Audubon. So we tend to do that on the 1st or 2nd of May. Um, in April, I fly down to Texas, which is where I lived for 30 years, 35 counting grad school. And my sister still lives there and the family gathers and we do a birdathon on the Texas coast, which is uh, uh, really, really fantastic. But it's just get outside because the birds are coming through and they're just going to be any everywhere. Turn on Merlin and then also look at the uh, birdscape, which uses radar to show the birds that are migrating over and just enormous numbers. And it's it's just... Yeah, it's really hard to focus on anything else during migration. It really is. I think birders should get a free pass from work for a couple of weeks during spring migration. We're doing other work, very important work. And all these birds, for the most part, are decked out in their spring breeding plumage. So they're brighter and more colorful, many of them, than they than they normally are. It's it is a sight. Yeah. And it then when I when I about May 6th, I go up to our summer home in Leland. And there I work with an 83-year-old bird bander, and we band the birds, the migrants, as they're coming through up there a little later. So that's also mm. fun and, I hope, meaningful. Holding a little bird in your hand, it's just, talk about spiritual, feeling that warmth, that little heart beating, you put the band on it, it might peck you, it might poop on you. And then you just open your hand and, and let it let it fly away. And uh, there's bird banding stations all over the country. And um, of course, only the professionals can, can handle the birds, take them out of the nets and stuff. But they all encourage visitors and they'll often pass you a bird to just hold and and let it and let it fly away tell our yeah. listeners a little bit about bird banding for people who aren't in the the ornithology ornithological world or are new to birding what is the purpose how is it done I love in your book you mentioned that stressed birds will often poop on you so <laughs> this is common we just we just deal with it but why the banding well, it's actually the poop is a bonus because then you can check it for parasites if it's your research bird so science the poop is a wonderful bonus so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in collaboration with the group in Canada, and every country has these, issue um, metal bands with numbers on them, and people that band will put those bands at the the right size and the right place on the on the leg, and then log that number 
um, into a national database. So, so this is how we know what birds are where. There's a book that's like the Banders Bible. It's funny because it's hard to identify a bird in your hand because so much of bird identification is how they're behaving. So there's a book called Pile that's like our Bible for making sure we have the right bird. And, and so that's that's the simplest form of bird banding is just putting those metal bands on. You might get a recapture, noting that is important. And then there's this public aspect that's also, I think, really important. Now, the scientists that are actually studying migration or studying behavior, if they're studying behavior, they'll also put colored bands on so that they can recognize their birds. And they would just do that with one species that they were studying, usually. So with the birds we band, we just put the metal bands on all species except hummingbirds. It's uh, hummingbirds, only very few people are authorized to band. So we just let them fly out of our nets. So colored bands are helpful because you can then see who's who hmm. with the metal ones with the number you can't. I think the most exciting new development in following migrants is uh, something developed out of Canada called MODIS. And i I can't remember what it stands for, but they put really tiny RFID tags that can go on really tiny birds. And then when they fly past a tower that picks them up, then they record that. And, and you know, so there's these top, more and more people are putting up these towers. And that's how we're just getting lots of fantastic information about, about bird migration. Uh, my next one of my next books will be called something like a bird in the hand and will be all about I can't this. wait I am so excited I'm I've got you on my my Amazon author follow <laughs> list so anything you publish I get a notification I'm looking forward to that already <laughs> hold your breath <laughs> Slow booking. I understand. Slow booking. The um, Our local Audubon chapter, uh, Southern California here in Orange County, is the Sea and Sage Audubon, and they do banding of swallows in the spring, of tree swallows, and they have swallow boxes, and I know that uh, non-scientists are invited to be part of those and take part. So uh, if, if you're interested nice. in bird banding, check out your local Audubon, and they may have some some opportunities for you because there is something about having a bird in your hands that really is magic in a way that's safe for the bird and is helping the scientific community. And um, there's just so much to learn, but even seeing a bird up close and the variation in the feathers and the beak and the tiny little things that you could never see when that bird is on your patio, 10 feet away. Yes. And that heartbeat that is, is like a, the tick of a watch. It's so quick. Um, Highly, highly recommend the, the the bird banding for anyone who's interested in that sort of scientific experiment. So you you talked about Merlin, which is a wonderful, easy, free app that you can download. And you talked about BirdCast. I will link to both of these in the show notes for our listeners who aren't familiar. But as we're heading into spring migration season, if you load up BirdCast and put in your local zip code, you will see how many birds are flying over in a given day. And it is astonishing. And the other thing that I learned as a new birding enthusiast is that most birds migrate at night. So as we're sleeping in our beds, there are 
tiny little passerines and, and big snow geese that are flying over our heads. Why are they migrating at night? That seems very difficult and very cold. So I'm no expert on this, but I, I think that it has to do with both the predators and the the lack of air currents. Um, my My favorite sort of the reason we go to the Texas coast is the birds leave the um, coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in the evening, and then they fly across the Gulf and land on the Texas coast. So there's a place that uh, is famous among birders called High Island that's close to my old home. Mm. And it's sort of the first piece of forest that they see after making this all night and part of the next day. And then around, you know, two in the afternoon or so, they they will hit that high island. And if it, if there's a north wind, which is hard for them, uh, they will land there and there'll just be so many birds to look at. A south wind and they might keep going, which of course, we hope for south winds for the sake of the birds. But if there's a north wind, you want to go watch. Mm. What are the birds you most look forward to seeing? It's just, it's the variety of them. I love the rose-breasted grosbeaks and the quails. The warblers are what everyone goes to see. Um, in that particular place, there's also a rookery, which has uh, great egrets and roseate spoonbills, cormorants, um, birds like that. And when I worked at Rice University, I would bring my students out there and they would uh, study those birds. But I'm uh, a scientific advisor to a research institute in Bangalore, India, and I'm going there on Friday. So I'll be looking at those birds there. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. What are your tools you bring with you? I know you've got the trusty notebook. Do you have a favorite pair of binoculars? Are you a photographer as well? Or do you just enjoy the observation? I, I do have a camera. I'm not a terribly good photographer, but I, I will bring my camera. And uh, I guess like lots of birders, I have lots of pairs of binoculars. And I tend to just use a really small pair that I can take with me everywhere. Um, I have a very nice new pair I probably won't bring to India. I think I'll bring some uh, Bushnell 10 by 40s that I, 10 by 40s, I guess, yeah, that I actually got for my 40th birthday from my parents. Mm. So they're a little bit older. I won't worry about them. There is that that gradient of binoculars, right? The best ones that you have to be so careful with often are are kind of a hindrance because you you don't necessarily want to bring them places. I have a pair of binoculars that I share with my children, and that is their purpose. Those are those are not the ones I'm deeply concerned about. So the the last time we were in India, also at this same research institute, we went to. Uh, birding place in Kerala in the south run by a guy named Eldhos and he birded for 17 years with no binoculars at all and then he had a visit from David Attenborough who wanted to film the Malagar hornbills 
which he did. And when he found out that Eldhos didn't actually himself have any binoculars, uh, David gave him a pair of binoculars. So um, when we were there birding, I, I kept thinking about what one could and couldn't see mm. without binoculars at all. These days I bird mostly by ear and I just love to just stop for a moment and just try to see, listen and figure out all the different birds that I can hear. And of course I have Marilyn on my phone so then I can see if Merlin has heard what I've heard. And sometimes Merlin hears something improbable, but yeah. Every once in a while, Merlin tells me there's a sandpiper somewhere. I know there is not a sandpiper. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the sandpipers fly overhead sometimes. And, you know, I've been in the field with better ornithologists than me who say, oh, there goes a sandpiper and it'll be way up high making a certain twig tweet so yeah that must be what it is every once in a while we actually get a pelican over our house and we're about eight miles inland but every once in a while it's 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 magic if you keep looking up you don't know what you'll see and to me that's yeah. part of the delight of birding is those unexpected moments of if you weren't paying attention that just would have passed you right by I was I was out on a hike recently and had to tie my shoe and as I'm tying my shoe I look up and Four feet away in the in the brush is a goldfinch. And and I've never been that close to a goldfinch. And I almost didn't notice, except my shoe came untied. Slow birding. Slow birding through shoelaces. Well, Joan, thank you so much for your time. As, as we wrap up, what is one invitation that you like to give to all new and old birders? Something they can do today. I would say enjoy the birds and find a friend who's a slightly better birder than you are and uh, go on out and uh, see what you can see in nature. Mm. It is such a gift and it's always there. Hey, I, I, uh, there's a couple of other apps that I really recommend. Oh yeah. Um, and I think they're out of, they're out of California so there's iNaturalist. Do you know that? I do. And then connected with that, but easier to just use is one called Seek. Mm. Tell and us about that one. I love that one. I use it, but I think some of our listeners might not might not be familiar. Yeah. So Seek, Seek you just take your smartphone and you touch Seek and you hold it over a plant and it'll, or an insect or a snake and it'll it'll tell you what you're what you're looking at and it'll it'll narrow it down to species if if it can and if you have an iNaturalist account you can then post it to iNaturalist which just like eBird I think we mentioned eBird but that's just citizen science at its best telling the uh world what is where so I, I use Seek. My son was insisting a snake we were looking at was not venomous. And I was pretty convinced. And uh, anyway, it was an eastern hognose snake. And it was doing its whole act of flattening its 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 head like a cobra. And yeah, anyway. Um, so yeah, Seek is wonderful for identifying, for identifying things and then post them to iNaturalist so the scientific world can know what you've seen where. So yeah, so Seek and iNaturalist and eBird, which 
do scientists make use of that information? Because I know a lot of us who are new to birding think, oh, I saw an XYZ, very rare bird. And you'll pull up the photo and say, no, that that's a house sparrow. Papers come out every day. They use eBird. There's uh, workshops at the uh, American Ornithological Society meetings on how to use eBird data. And there's local managers that will sift out the, the uh, they'll, tell, they'll email you and say, hey, could you document such and such? It's not really very common here. So citizen scientists can be helpful. Oh, yes. Um, eBird is proving to be a more powerful resource for knowing what birds are where than the more professional things like the birding, breeding bird survey, which is where you take a certain length and uh, go every 10, I think it's every 10 miles stop and record everything you hear. eBird is phenomenal. And yes, there is some noise to it. There's some error. Um, we data scientists are very experienced with how to deal with error. It's just mm -hmm. not a problem. But not saying you should be sloppy and never claim a bird you don't really know. And if you don't know which chickadee mm -hmm. it is, put, you know, chickadee sp for species where you're not sure. But yes, it's uh, you can feel good about your. And then the other thing is when you log your birds on eBird, I never had a life list. But I do have an eBird list because it'll keep track of where you've been, when you were there, what birds you saw. You you know, it does all that that accounting work for you. So it, it's truly a wonderful resource. It comes out of Cornell. They get my uh, a large share of my birding charity dollars. They do really good work and they do it in a way that's very approachable and friendly. As a new birder, I feel I felt like there was no real barrier for entry. Welcome. Here's Merlin. Sit in your backyard. Turn on the yeah. sound identification and and learn learn with us. It's a great gift. And there's things like feeder watch and nest watch and all those things. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good tip. I will link to all of those different apps in our show notes so folks can just click over and, and sign up for, for eBird. Professional scientists and citizen scientists alike. <laughs> Dr. Joan Strassman, thank you so much for the gift of your time and for the gift of your book. Everyone check out Slow Birding, the Art and Science of Enjoying the Birds in Your Own Backyard. It is a brilliant book for new birders. It is a brilliant book for seasoned birders and scientists alike. It's on Audible. Right. It's on Kindle. I believe if you get it on Audible, Dr. Joan will read it to you herself. Thank you for writing this beautiful book. We look forward to what comes next. Thank you. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Put it on your soul. Yes, it does.